Katzenberg on WHMP. And welcome to the show. I am Buzz Eisenberg. And I think I have already introduced myself as Bill Newman. Uh, we have with us for the beginning of this hour, two of the leaders of the Massachusetts Teachers Association, because we really want all of us to be aware of the importance of the Cherish Act and what is happening as well with MCAS. Let me turn the microphone over to the Massachusetts Teachers Association President, Max Page. Max. Thanks, Bill. Thanks, Buzz. Good morning. Yes, I'm really pleased to be here and have a special guest with me, Maria Hegbloom, who is a professor of English at Bridgewater State University, but also the president of the Massachusetts State College Association. Welcome, Maria. Welcome, and thanks for having me. So we're, we are just a few weeks out from a hearing on really the one of the most important bills for us in the Massachusetts Teachers Association, but also really uh, for the future of public education in the Commonwealth, and that's the Cherish Act. I should note that it has a strong connection in Western Mass because Senator Joe Comerford is a lead sponsor in the Senate, and uh, Representative Pat Duffy from Holyoke is a, one of the lead sponsors in the, in the House of Representatives in, in Massachusetts. And this is a bill that will be heard on, on 9-18, that is September 18th, at the State House, and is really a blueprint for achieving something we have long lacked in this Commonwealth, which is high-quality, debt-free public higher education. And we're going to dive into that. But first, I want to just have Maria just explain what your role is um, in representing the state universities. Um, so I am the president of the MSEA, the Massachusetts State College Association, and we are the faculty librarian union that represents all of the nine, nine state universities across the Commonwealth. And that includes Mass College of Liberal Arts, that includes Westfield State University, Framingham State, Fitchburg, and, and onwards. Yes. So let's let's talk about this. You've been an advocate for public higher education for many years. Let's talk about the different elements of this bill and why it's so important right now. So the first part of the Cherish Act is to establish a system so that there will be universal debt-free public higher education, that every resident will know that they can go to a public college or university and graduate debt-free. Why is that so important to you as an educator and, and as a union leader? Well, I think that this is the heart of what public higher education is really all about, and that is access, right? Um, our, the purpose of our existence, our mission is to serve students, to allow them to have opportunities, the opportunities of growth that public higher education offers um, to, to individuals who might not otherwise have that opportunity, either because of, a lot of times because of financial, um, issues, but also regional issues. So, you know, the state universities are regional and they serve their regions. Um, I would say for specifically for, you know, the work I do with the nine state universities, the debt free part is extremely important. Um, we, our students actually take on more debt than any of the other systems in the public system. So our students take on more debt than the community college students or the UMass students, um, largely because they're kind of these working class, oftentimes our students are coming from working class, middle class backgrounds where 
um, their families are making just a little bit too much to qualify for some of the other grants and aid that's available to them through you know federal programs or state programs um, but really not enough that their families are able to really contribute to paying for their college so our students have been paying for their college largely through taking on loans and what that means for them is that the four years they or five years that they might spend with us ends up being a lifetime of burden for them that prohibits their ability to start families you know own homes um, and it's just an unfair way um, for students to start their adult life when all they want is an education so we're talking with Maria Hegbloom, who's the president of the Massachusetts State College Association, which represents, I think, over 5,000 uh, faculty and librarians across the nine state universities in Massachusetts. I think what's so important, what you just said, is this is this whole system where we have students taking out thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars of debt and having that sit on their shoulders into middle age, is not normal. Um, you know, you know, I I teach at UMass Amherst when it was founded as the Massachusetts Agricultural College, it was written in that it should be as close to free as possible. So this notion of free higher ed or debt-free public higher education actually goes back to the founding of this system because as you said, access is one of the main driving purposes of public higher education. All right, so we're talking about the Cherish Act. So part two of that though is once we get students there, they've now been, now they realize they can go debt-free we have to support them. And part of the Cherish Act is, a second big part is to say that when they're in college, we will make sure to provide the support so that they can get to graduation, have a successful experience and get to graduation. Why, why is that crucial? What do you see about students dropping out and not making it all the way through? Yeah, I mean, um, access is, is really no good if once you know students get to our institutions we do not have the support systems there to make sure that they can be successful um, and we are seeing that you know a large number of the students we serve at the mass state um, at the state universities are first generation um, low-income students whose who do not have a family background in universities and even just figuring out how to do college right can be pretty substantial um i have my my oldest just went to school and you know i see all the ways in which he's very lucky to have someone who knows oh you go to this website page and you have to do this and then you now need to talk to these people about that i mean those very basic things are um, issues that many of our students don't have on top of that we have students who you know are struggling to find housing who may be food insecure who you know maybe even need um, family care or child care in order to be able to even just come to classes right and be able to study um, if we're not providing them with some of the resources they need to be able to find those resources we're not creating opportunities for their success on top of that yeah so explain this to me if you would please maria and max what does the cherish act do to address that problem so the CHERISH Act provide, will provide funding for what some, some call them success programs. In other words, guidance, both guidance for students, much more intensive guidance, as well as additional supports for the kinds of emergencies or the kinds of needs students have. There's what we found, the research all over the country has found that a single incident, you know, loss of childcare, a car breaking down, a lack of access to transportation can just derail a student and they'll take a break and then they won't come back. 
So we have a, way too many students, especially at the community colleges, also, also state universities and UMass, who don't make it through in four or even six years, um, then it's, a, it's not good for them and it's not good for the Commonwealth. And I can just give a one, you know, really small example, you know, of, you know, my own experience with a student who was, you know, two semesters away from graduating and had come to me and told me about, you know, all kinds of family issues that were happening. He was having to start working graveyards and help take care of his nephew and he's still trying to make it through, but couldn't buy any books. You know, and the semester is beginning. He just did not have the money to do that. You know, at that moment in time, I was able to connect him to some of our own university, um, you know, options so that we could get him what he needed to finish his classes out. But, you know, this would be creating those kinds of structures throughout all of the institutions so that, you know, it's not just, oh, I know a guy, but actually become something that is built into the structure so students know that those are available. So that if something like that does happen, they still have the ability to finish up. So we're talking to Maria Hagbloom, president of the Massachusetts State College Association. Um, let's quickly do the last mention the last two parts of the Cherish Act, this high, this blueprint for public higher education. A third key part is about fair pay for the staff and faculty on the campuses, and it, um, and Massachusetts doesn't do so well compared to other places. So tell us about that concern. Yeah, I mean, just overall, we, we see that compared to our peer institutions, both at, both at the state universities, but also um, at the UMass system and the community colleges, you know, our pay hasn't kept up. Um, we, and we live in one of the most expensive um, states in the union. And so we're seeing a harder and harder time of just even being able to hire in faculty and librarians who make the choice that they can't take a a job in our state because they can't afford to live in our state based on what they are being offered. Um, in addition to that, we see, have seen an increasing reliance on adjunct faculty, both in Massachusetts, but across, you know, the nation. Um, and, you know, this reliance on adjuncts means we are relying on a workforce that is unbenefited, that is has low pay, no retirement, and people who are, you know, really having to cobble together a career working at multiple institutions in order to just make a living wage. Um, and that significantly affects the learning conditions of our students as well. I mean, many of our adjuncts are not even um, required to hold office hours or don't even have an office. Um, because they're not paid for those office hours, right? And if you're running from one job to another, um, you know, the ability you might have to serve students is significantly undermined. So one of the things the Cherish Act would do is to support hiring of more faculty, staff, and librarians, full-time faculty, staff, and librarians, so that they, um, you know, have the ability to serve students in the way that they should and to at least begin to study the equity issues around pay that we have, um, ensuring that you know, our pay starts to meet the living expenses that our faculty, staff, and librarians are facing in the state. And the final point on the Cherish Act very quickly is about um, the, the buildings. At one time, the state, uh, maybe with help from the federal government, built our campus buildings at our community colleges, state universities, and UMass campuses. Now, that's so often paid for by the campuses, and that means paid for by the students, right? How does that work within the AUC and the state universities? 
Yeah, it's 100% paid for by the students. So, I mean, it works in two ways. One is whenever buildings, new buildings are built, um, these are being financed by the state universities and then the costs of financing that are then pushed onto students. So if students look at their bill, they'll see a fee on there, a capital fee, which is essentially the debt finance that, this, that the universities have taken on to pay for the buildings getting built really means the students are paying for that. Um, and that is not nothing. Um, I, across the state university system, on average, our students are paying $1,500 a year. Oh, I think it's even higher. I think it's closer to 2,500 per student. Maybe closer year. to 2,500 yeah. um, a year just to pay the financing on that debt service. And that means for our students that they're taking out $2,500 a year in debt in order to pay the debt of the university to build those buildings. Uh, that is absurd. And they will pay that debt well into their adult life. The other issue is deferred maintenance. Our institutions don't pay for the deferred maintenance. And so, you know, at BSU, we have a library that was full of mold. At Fitchburg State, they had a library with ceilings literally falling down on, you know, onto the floor. Um, and, you know, our institutions are having to make the decision, do we pay for uh, maintenance? or do we raise student fees? Right. Um, and that's an unfair decision to put on the universities. The state needs to pay for its own buildings. And to be crystal clear that the Cherish Act would have the state retake over its role that it once had for many years of paying for what are state buildings and not forcing campuses to raise student fees, which creates more student debt. So that's a core part of the, the Cherish Act to green our campuses by, by having the state take over that role. And Matt, so go back. I, so what? go back for a second, if you would, please. On 918, there's a hearing on the Cherish Act before what committee at the State House, and what is it going to do? Is it going to fund all four pieces that you just told us about? Yes, the Cherish Act is being heard at the Joint Committee on Higher Education, which is co-chaired by our state senator and chief sponsor of the Cherish Act, Senator Joe Comerford from Western Mass. And this, the bill would commit the legislature. Um, to do all four things, create a system for debt-free public higher education, create full um, funding of our student supports, commit to uh, fair wages, and also take over, retake over the, the role of building and paying for state buildings. And is this a funding bill, Max, or is this a bill that lays it's, out? It's a commitment to funding over the long term, absolutely, yes. But it would build on what the fair share amendment, the millionaire's tax, has provided, which is upwards of $2 billion a year for public education and transportation. Uh, Max Page, this is Buzz. I'd, I'd like to, I was talking to Senator Paul Mark, a huge supporter as a representative and as a, a senator of the Cherish Act. And he, he said that a lot of people are convinced that in fact, it's a wonderful thing for students, faculty and staff, and the buildings on campus, but when it's fully funded, it's going to be a half a billion dollars. We have a $56 billion budget. And Paul Mark said what people don't understand is how it's going to benefit our economy in the long run. Could you speak to what impact the Cherish Act, if it passes, would have on our economy over time? Yes. So some of our economists at UMass Amherst, such as uh, Michael Ash, um, is, has shown that um, the best in single investment in the economy, in the near term and the long term, is investment in public higher education, both the investments in the campuses, 
but also the long-term investments in an educated population. There is no better economic investment than in our people, especially in the state that has no oil wells, that has no diamond mines, that has no silver mines. This is what we have in Massachusetts. We have cod, we have cranberries, and we also have an educated population. <laughs> Max, you want to spend, we promised a, a moment on MCAS. You want to spend a, a minute, and we'll, of course, we'll cover this regularly over the next year. Yes. I wanted to make sure that Maria Hagblum was, was a professor of English at Bridgewater State, the head of the State College Association, also a parent, and has thought a lot about why MCAS reform, why getting rid of the high stakes testing requirement matters to public higher education. So maybe just give us a quick minute on that. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, I mean, I think it's essential to understand that our students in the high, you know, uh, public higher ed sector are the students that were in the public K through 12 sector. And I think increasingly in talking to, you know, my members, um, there's a growing understanding that what we're seeing is, you know, a change in our students, students who come into our system very anxious about learning. Um, students who think the, what learning is, is getting the answer right and being able to write that down on a test. And that has fundamentally changed our working conditions in the sense that we're no longer in this position where we just jump in and, you know, are able to dive into the content, but we have to do a lot of work with students to get them to feel secure about even being in a learning environment where they might make mistakes or get things wrong. And I think MCAS has created a culture where our students are more and more nervous about sort of that learning experience. And I've seen that, of course, with my own student, with my own children. Um, but I also see that with my students, especially freshmen coming in who are like, well, what if I don't get it right? Um, and I think that's been, it's created a lot more work for faculty in trying to navigate that. Um, it's created students who are much less prepared for learning. Um, and I think overall it's doing a disservice to education. Thank We're you so it. much, Maria Hagblum uh, from Bridgewater State and the Mass State College Association. Thanks for being with us today. Thank you. And thank you, Max Page. This has been your state you. We'll be right back. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. This week's Shock Tuesday is Tavern on the Hill. This Tuesday at 9 a.m., Tavern on the Hill releases gift certificates for their restaurant on Mount Tom. Tavern on the Hill, barbecue done slow over native oak, brisket, ribs, and pulled pork, plus Tavern signature salmon, pumpkin tortillaki, and big deck with a view of the Berkshire foothills. And this Tuesday, you save 30%. Tavern on the Hill on Mount Tom, available this Shop Tuesday at 9 a.m. on the Shop 30 store at whmp.com. Are you tired of feeling like a watchless hero in a world full of timekeeping villains? Fear not. Hero Watch Repair is here to save the day. With over 20 years of experience and a heroic five-star customer rating, Hero Watch is the ultimate superhero of watch repair and customization in the valley. These heroes possess the power to buy, fix, sell, and customize watches like no other. They'll swoop in, rescue your timepiece, and restore it to its former glory. Call Avery at Hero Watch Repair, East Hampton. You love your car. We all do. It's part of our DNA. If your vehicle gets into an accident, the people to turn to are the collision experts at Fort Hill Collision Services in Amherst. Fort Hill lets you leave your concerns at the door. They'll fix your vehicle to better than factory standards and deal with your insurance company from start to finish. 
Fort Hill is locally owned and operated. They're part of the community, and they guarantee the work they do every time. Trust Fort Hill Collision Services, Route 9, Amherst, and online at forthillcs.com. The Northampton Community Music Center provides quality, accessible music education to more than a 1,000 members of the greater Northampton community. Hi, this is Jason Trotta, Executive Director of the Northampton Community Music Center. Our scholarship fund helps those with limited means access affordable music instruction and has never turned away a qualifying applicant in its 33 years of existence. To find out how you can help, please visit our website at ncmc.net. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. Uh, are we having technical difficulties? Uh, Bill, can you hear us? I can hear you fine. Thank you, Buzz. Okay, there we go. Well, welcome to the show, Jesse Letterman, who is a long-term counselor in Springfield. He is with us today because he is a candidate for mayor in Springfield. The preliminary election is September the 12th. It's coming right up. Jesse, I'd appreciate it, Councillor Letterman. I'd appreciate it if you would share with us what this race is about and why you are running. Well, thanks so much, uh, Buzz and Bill, for having me on. It's great to be with you. And, and as you said, I'm Jesse Letterman. I'm currently the city council president here in the city of Springfield and a candidate uh, for mayor in the preliminary election that's coming up. And you know, this election really, I believe, is the most important election in the city of Springfield uh, since we had our first ward representation election in 2009. That election uh, really changed the trajectory of the city of Springfield on a number of issues. It flipped the political machine in Springfield on its head and led to uh, the type of city council that we have today, a council that I am proud to lead. Uh, but what we have seen uh, in my time on the council uh, and certainly in recent years is the fact that we need a mayor uh, who shares our values, a mayor who is committed to thinking big and towards the future and building a local government that really is meeting the needs of every single neighborhood, one that is accessible, that is transparent, that is professional. And that's why I'm in this race. I have a clear record on the city council, not just of talking about the issues that impact the people of Springfield, but actually taking action on them. And we've worked the levers of the city council to a great degree to affect change in Springfield over the last uh, three terms that I've been there. But I really, in considering this election this year, uh, and talking with my family, talking with community members across the city of Springfield, felt the need uh, to put myself forward as an option for folks so that we can do even more here in the city of Springfield. So City Council President, Springfield City Council President Jesse Letterman, I, I think you have a deserved reputation for an effective progressive legislator, and I, I don't think there's any question about that. What is of concern in this preliminary is that Mayor Sarno is running, of course, uh, he's been there a long time, and there are three persons who are contesting the election, and I'm wondering how progressives are supposed to sort that out, in your opinion. Well, you know, I think that you know, we all have a vision for change uh, in, in terms of this preliminary election, and we all have our own records, the issues that we're passionate about. And it's been a robust and, and respectful preliminary election here in the city of Springfield. We've had an opportunity to have uh, several forums, uh, had an opportunity to campaign in spaces where we were together. And I think there's clear differences that uh, voters in Springfield are discerning as we head into the preliminary election. Uh, and certainly this preliminary will narrow the field uh, to a top two. 
uh, moving forward after September and going into the November election. So what I always ask folks to look at in this race is not just what we say we will do uh, as a mayor, uh, as candidates, but what we have actually done uh, in the offices that you have elected us to. And you know, one of the things I'm really proud of is every year that I ran for the Springfield City Council, I put forward two or three initiatives that I said we would work on. And we've been able to deliver on every single one of those initiatives, whether it was stopping the biomass waste incinerator, restoring uh, the board of police commissioners in the city of Springfield, creating a fair and transparent process for the appointment of boards and commissions, pushing uh, to bring community choice energy aggregation to Springfield to source renewable energy and stabilize electric rates. And that's really what, what I'm talking with voters about, uh, you know, our clear record and the proof of concept that we really can deliver on these issues, some of which are issues that people said were not possible. Uh, especially uh, dealing with you know some of the entrenchment that we have in the city of Springfield, uh, but we pushed through, and I've never backed down from a tough fight. I'm not backing down from this one either. Tell us, if you would, please, uh, Council President Jesse Letterman, what are the possibilities of defeating Mayor Sarno? He's been there a long time. He is a big political machine. Well, you know, this race is really not about Dominic Sarno, and it's not about myself or my competitors either. This race is about the future of the city of Springfield. And as I've knocked on, you know, thousands of doors across uh, our community in this election, what I'm hearing from, from residents in every neighborhood is they are ready for a fresh perspective. You know, my approach to local government is that if we're not innovating every single day, uh, we are not doing our job. And the longer that you are there, uh, the more I think people become sometimes convinced that the way they do things is the only way to do them. Uh, and that's why I think folks are ready for that fresh perspective. And we hear that so clearly, it, it really across our neighborhoods. And I, you know, what people are especially looking at right now in Springfield is how do we um, build a community that is safe for all of our family members, for all of our neighbors? How do we address affordability of housing, utilities, and infrastructure? And what are we really doing to build pathways to success for the next generation in Springfield? You know, I, I hear from too many young people in Springfield that they think success is getting out. And we want to change that. But if we're going to do that, uh, we really need a commitment to creating that opportunity. And that's something that, you know, we've been speaking about and articulating throughout this election. We are speaking with Springfield City Council President Jesse Letterman, candidate for mayor. The preliminary election is coming up in the next, well, two weeks. And we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, I want to talk to Council President Letterman about police and schools and finances. We'll do that right after this break. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Plans for a redesign of Northampton's Main Street are running into some snags. Over 1,000 residents have signed a petition to try to block the project. But Mayor Gina Louise Shera says she stands firmly behind the Picture Main Street project. Shera released a statement saying she has no intention to stop the advancement and says there was extensive public input that went into the design. The Picture Main Street project will create three 11-foot-wide travel lanes, expand sidewalks, and remove some on-street parking. The design encompasses nearly half a mile of Main Street, beginning at West and Elm near Smith College, and traveling to the intersection of Market and Holly. The $21 million project will take about three years to complete. Opponents say it will cause traffic congestion and harm to local businesses. The Norwatic Rail Trail Tunnel under Route 9 in Hadley will be closed for repairs beginning next week. The Massachusetts DOT construction crews will be conducting pavement crack repairs as part of extending the tunnel to accommodate the widening of Route 9. The tunnel closure is scheduled to begin on Tuesday, September 5th, 
and the anticipated reopening is scheduled for Friday, October 6th. The Amherst Pelham Regional School District has appointed an interim superintendent. Douglas Slaughter will replace outgoing superintendent Michael Morris immediately. And over 35,000 visitors are expected at this year's three-county fair. Festivities kick off today and run through Labor Day on Monday. Sunny today with a light breeze, a high of 74 to 78. Scattered clouds tonight, evening temperatures in the 60s, an overnight low of 48 to 54. It's a sun cloud mix on Saturday, a high of 78 to 82. Mid-80s and mostly sunny on Sunday, 91 on Labor Day Monday and sunny skies. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. A Northampton man contends with his slow passage into blindness. What's that like? Andrew Leland's new book, The Country of the Blind, is part memoir, part historical and cultural investigation. Leland's determined not to merely survive the transition, but to revel in that, which makes blindness enlightening, accepting uncertainty, connecting with others across differences. Warm and funny, The Country of the Blind is an exhilarating tour of a way of being most of us have never paused to consider. Pick up The Country of the Blind at Northampton's Independent Bookstore, Broadside Bookshop. Hi, this is Jessica from Fitness Together. I meet clients every day who tell me that as the number on their scale grew higher, their self-esteem dropped lower, and going to a traditional gym absolutely terrified them. Here at Fitness Together, we'll work with you one-on-one, either virtually or in one of our private suites in Amherst or Northampton. We'll help you set and reach your fitness goals, and most importantly, smile every time you look in the mirror. Fitness Together in Amherst and Northampton. Your self-worth is worth Fitness Together. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member, Bill Newman. Local farmers are arriving at the co-op every day with summer berries, corn, tomatoes, and watermelon, and endless bounty. At the co-op seafood counter, little neck clams are rolling in. What goes better with corn and tomatoes than sweet, briny little necks? No time to cook today? The co-op makes pizza, sandwiches, burgers, sushi, and smoothies, and they make it all from scratch. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. The Daily Hampshire Gazette, the Pioneer Valley's newspaper covering Holyoke to Deerfield and Belchertown to the Hilltowns, was awarded New England Newspaper of the Year for their local news coverage. Home delivered six days a week and online 24-7. Try their digital-only subscription options and stay connected with your community wherever you are. Pick up a copy on newsstands, subscribe, or visit gazettenet.com. The Daily Hampshire Gazette, covering the Pioneer Valley since 1786. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Springfield City Council President Jesse Letterman. He is with us today because the preliminary election in Springfield is on September 12th, and that election will winnow down the field from four candidates to two, and then, of course, there will be the general election in November. Councillor I would like to understand from you a couple of the differences between you and the incumbent Mayor Dominic Sarno. Let's start with policing. Is there a difference between you and Sarno? I think that there there absolutely is. You know, in the city of Springfield, uh, we have struggled greatly uh, with community police relations, and a great deal of that struggle and the lack of progress there has been the fact that this current administration uh, under Dominic Sarno really has refused to confront the challenge that exists and in many ways uh, denied the challenge. And that is to the detriment of the members of the Springfield Police Department and the residents 
that they serve. One of the one of the greatest points of contention has been the appointment of the Springfield Police Commission, a civilian command and control of the Springfield Police Department, which is something that has been sought uh, by advocates for reform and by members of the city council for over a decade in the city of Springfield. And when I joined the council, at that point, the administration was in violation directly of an ordinance uh, that would have established that board of police commissioners to have uh, full authority over the policies of the Springfield Police Department, including hiring, firing, and discipline, but also over, you know, really the uh, the policies that guide uh, their their work in the city of Springfield. And uh, the mayor had long opposed it. I brought forward eventually uh, in order to out hire outside legal counsel uh, and sue uh, the Sarno administration, as I know you're familiar with, Bill, um, all the way to the state Supreme Judicial Court. And we won there. Uh, and the reason I brought forward that legislation was because it was critical for us to end that decade-long impasse in order to be able to implement the reforms um, that are necessary. But, you know, in between all of that occurring, certainly uh, we have seen the Department of Justice come in and place the Springfield Police Department under a federal consent decree. That is uh, something that has only happened to a handful of departments across the United States recently. And the fact that Springfield is one of them is really a clear indication that the mayor has failed in his ability to lead uh, on public safety and on policing. It is costing uh, taxpayers in the city of Springfield quite a bit of money uh, that is taking resources away from actually being able to address some of the issues that we face when it comes to crime and violence. And it's something that you know I've been outspoken about long before the DOJ arrived. And so as mayor, uh, what I will do is make sure that we appoint uh, a professional and diverse police commission, a police commission that is a beacon for the community, one that is trusted and respected, and that we will you know, stop this really systemic disempowerment that the Sarno administration has tried to carry on, despite the fact that the Supreme Judicial Court ordered the appointment of that police commission. The Sarno administration has continually attempted to limit their power and influence, and that is creating a great deal of confusion in the police department and throughout the city. And so that's a clear difference uh, that we will have and that we will fully implement uh, the Board of Police Commissioners. We will make sure that we comply with the consent decree and get that uh, lifted, and that we're really investing in a public safety strategy that targets the root causes of crime and violence. We need to make sure that we are partnering with appropriate agencies, that we are getting out there, um, and not just being reactive, but being proactive uh, for our community. Do you see that as being a one of the ways in which communities can come together in Springfield? I mean, the, the, the DOJ report uh, is really a condemnation of, uh, uh, and, and, it, and it, it really displays a cover-up of uh, inappropriate policing, um, which is not to say that all police officers are bad. Of course, that's not true. But boy, there's a systemic problem. You know, I, I want to be clear uh, that during my time as a city councilor and as a resident in the city of Springfield, you know, I've had the opportunity to meet and work with and collaborate with many members of our police department who share, uh, you know, the viewpoint uh, that we need to serve the people of the city of Springfield and, and the vast majority, many of them go out every single day to do that. So Dominic Sarno is going to come up in this election and he's going to say that all of his opponents uh, don't support the police, want to defund the police and, and all of these different statements that he's going to make. But the truth is the only person who has really, I think, defunded the police in the city of Springfield is Dominic Sarno through his lack of leadership and the fact that he's costing the city of Springfield hundreds of thousands of millions of dollars in, uh, you know, in, in, in lawsuits and in charges and a, a fees related to the consent decree. Um, it, it really is leading to a serious situation where uh, we are struggling with recruitment in the city of Springfield. We are struggling with the, the numbers of officers and the morale um, because of the continued 
chaos that the Sarno administration has put the police department in. And it's something that has to end. And again, we need a new vision for how we are policing in the city of Springfield so that we can actually be able to address some of the root causes uh, that are going on, which include a lack of community police relations and uh, a lack of consistent partnership with human service agencies. Tell us about your vision for the schools in Springfield. Take a minute, and then I'm going to ask you about your vision for economic development in the city above and beyond the casino. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I know you, you were on with my former union, uh, the Massachusetts Teachers Association, just prior to this, and uh, you know they do great work. I've had a great, I've enjoyed being a member of that union, and certainly I've had an opportunity to consult some of our local teachers um, and union officials relative to the state of our schools in Springfield. And you know, my my viewpoint on on public education in Springfield is that we need to make it really work for our students and for our educators. You know, right now we know um, that there is too much teaching to the test going on. We know that there is not enough autonomy in our school buildings and not enough parents, teachers, students and administrators really at the table. I think the people that know our students best are the people um, who are really spending time with them every single day in the classroom and we need their voices represented. We also know that in Springfield a number of our schools are under a, a quasi-state uh, situation with the empowerment zone. We need a pathway to return uh, those schools to full local control and also to make sure that all of our schools have access to some of the same autonomy that was granted under that process. So uh, as mayor, I'll be chairman of the Springfield School Committee. It's a role that I'm comfortable in. I've spent a great deal of time in our schools throughout my time on the city council and also having served on the governing board of the Springfield Renaissance School, which operates in a very unique position being a fully public school, but with an MOU establishing a governing board for policy and curriculum autonomy that has allowed us uh, during my time there to be very successful. That's a model I think that we can replicate. And really, ultimately, we also need to utilize our school systems to build pathways uh, to uh, career and, and, and public education opportunities, higher education opportunities for our students there. You know, every single student in Springfield should have an opportunity to be able to stay, grow, and thrive in the city of Springfield, but we need to be able to bring those opportunities forward earlier in their academic careers and help them see the success that can be right in front of them. For some, that's going to be higher education or public higher education. For others, that might be working with our local labor organizations um, or just at some of our local employers. But right now, uh, we're operating in too many isolated silos, and I think that's what's leading to many students feeling uh, like there really is not that opportunity for them here. Uh, City Council President Jesse Letterman, I know I just said that it would ask you to articulate your vision for the economic future of the city uh, above and beyond MGM Springfield, but we really have to run. So I would ask you if you'd share with our listeners your website, uh, people who would like to know more about you, be involved in the campaign. It's the, the deadline is coming up. The preliminary election is on September 12th. So share that and perhaps a last word from you for our listeners. You know, you can absolutely learn more about my economic development vision, including the creation of the first municipal bank in the United States of America at Jesse for springfield.com and i really appreciate the opportunity to be here you know this is going to be a very closely contested preliminary election i am the only elected official running for mayor right now who has not previously been endorsed by mayor dominic sarno and that is because i do not come from the springfield political machine i come from our neighborhoods from our grassroots community organizations and together we are going to be able to bring that perspective to the mayor's office so thank you for the opportunity to be here with you guys and for having great questions Really appreciate your time. Good luck. Good luck. Thank you. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg.
the Three County Fair. Wow, the magic of Lance Gifford. The Great Late Summer Fair. The demolition derbies are insane. Labor Day weekend in Northampton. All the free concerts. You going? Never miss the fair. The Three County Fair. Free parking. The racing pigs are so cute. Summer's not over yet. Are you kidding? The wall of death? Can't wait for Shania Twin. What do you go for? The rides. The games. The food. The Great Late Summer Fair. The Three County Fair. Labor Day weekend in Northampton. When it comes to investing, we're taught the higher the risk, the better the reward. Francis Ram, the money doctor, says it isn't necessarily true. We need to remember that with risk comes the potential for losses, and making up losses can set us back or worse, delay our retirement. You've heard the testimonials for years about how her patented program helps people become 100% debt-free, far ahead of schedule. But did you know that for more than 35 years, Dr. Ram has been helping people retire well with Without unnecessary risk, Dr. Ram says most people mistakenly accept that in order to earn attractive interest rates, they must tolerate risk and that choosing safety means settling for lackluster returns. But it doesn't have to be that way. You can earn competitive rates and minimize taxes without risking a single dollar of your hard-earned savings. Contact the money doctor at Hug Your Money for a free consultation. Call 413-773-3333 or visit Hug HugYourMoney.com. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. It wasn't necessary and it probably wasn't even appropriate on the one hand. I don't want that to sound like I don't support schools. I have a long history of supporting schools, certainly longer than any one of those city councilors. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 1015 and 1400 WHMP News, Information, and the Arts. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. WHMP. The beat goes on. The beat goes on. Drums keep pounding a rhythm to and indeed, this is Artbeat with Donna Belcasis, who has with her and us today in the studio a very special and distinguished guest. Donna Belcasis, the honor and pleasure of the introduction is yours. Thank you, Bill. Good morning. Ruth E. Carter is a living legend of costume design, and for almost over three decades, she has shaped the history of black, she has shaped the story of black experience on the screen. Her work on Marvel's Black Panther and Black Panther Wakanda Forever not only brought Afrofuturism to the mainstream, but also made her the first black winner of an Oscar in costume design and the first black woman to win two Academy Awards in any category. She even has a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. We are honored to have the pride of Springfield, Ruth E. Carter, here in the studio today. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's great. When I hear living legend in 30 years, I know, I think, is there another one in me? I <laughs> hope it they don't you. think I'm done. <laughs> no, you're just beginning. Well, first of all, congratulations on your new mural at Rebecca Johnson Elementary School in Springfield. It is stunning and so inspiring. Thank you. We had a team that worked really hard on it, uh, city murals and the mayor and 
the mayor's office. It was so great working with everyone. And it, I'm so satisfied with how it turned out. It's, it's gorgeous. You know, at the unveiling, you spoke about growing up in Springfield as a young black girl immersed in her culture and community. This was such an influence on how you tell stories through your designs. Please tell us more about that. Well, people think that I got into costume design because, you know, I was playing with Barbie dolls and all the clothes, making clothes for my Barbies. And that wasn't it at all. You know, I learned in Springfield about, you know, poets and playwrights. And I learned about uh, storytelling. And I could see the images of the characters in a Langston Hughes poem mm. or James Baldwin. And so... Um, through like the Amherst College, there was a program called Uhuru Sasa, and then I was in Upward Bound. I was a boys and girls club kid, mm. Camp Atwater. My mother got rid of me every summer. <laughs> <laughs> well, she knew what to do because those things really impacted you. Now, you have a passion for culture and history, and your costumes are inspired by traditional African tribal wear merged with fashion and technology, and your attention to detail is remarkable. What was the most complex costume you had to design? Well, I think in uh, Black Panther 1, uh, the Dora Milaje, because, you know, everyone it was a fan favorite. Everyone wanted to know what was the Dora Milaje going to look like in the end. And, you know, there was a sketch that was approved, but it didn't have, like, the details of Africa. And so you can actually travel all over the continent on that one costume because there's the Indibele mm. tribe with the, with the leather and the back skirt. There's the Turkana with the beadwork, the, uh, the Indibele with the rings, the neck rings, and the himba with the leather. It, it's such a beautiful costume in terms of its representation. Mm. And we it really took like telling the story and retraining uh, standards of beauty to look mm. at it differently. And mm -hmm. it's what I'm very proud of. I mean, there's such a sense of empowerment in these costumes yes. and authenticity that I is tried. just really comes through. <laughs> I mean, they're they're stunning. And now you have a new book out called The Art of Ruth E. Carter, which gives us a glimpse of your artistry and the design process. And there's so many wonderful illustrations throughout. Were those your original sketches or did you collaborate? In the, in the first part of the book, you see some of my illustrations that I, I did in my brother Robert Carter's uh, studio in New Hampshire. When I first got school days and uh, I, I kind of locked myself up in his studio and he, he helped me get through all of these um, illustrations and we were airbrushing and mm -hmm. doing all kinds of fun stuff. And then as you know, the it, you become more and more into the professional world. You realize that you don't have to sketch, mm. that you can actually hire illustrators and you can provide them with uh, concepts and and ideas that they sketch for you. And they can mm -hmm. do a lot more in one day than I ever could. <laughs> well, you know, I still like analog pencil paper. Me too. Uh, and there's something about the feel of that. But um, now you actually have several artists in your family. Yes, my brother Robert uh, is a fine artist. Uh, 
we grew up, my brother Roy is also a, like a character artist. He does great portraits. But we grew up with, you know, pencils and pads and chalks, mostly in my brother's room. Mm. Uh, you know, they were off limits to me until they were gone. And then I would go in there and get their pencils and break off their chalks and, <laughs> and go into my room and sit and draw. I would just copy. I copied everything they did. I just wanted to draw like them. Mm -hmm. You know, it was strange. I but, mean... What great training, though, from your yeah. own siblings, sort of, sort of. Yeah, well, they, um, you know, I think it was by example. Mm -hmm. it, it wasn't necessarily like a tutorial, right. but it was by example. Mm. Now, you didn't necessarily start off in drawing or illustration. Uh, you actually had a theater background. Yes, um, you know, I one day discovered a sewing machine in my bedroom. I thought it was my desk, and mm. I opened up the big leaflet top, and inside was a white sewing machine by the company White. And that's oh. a Massachusetts brand. Really? I just looked that up recently. Mm. And so uh, sketching transferred to sewing. I taught myself a little bit about sewing. And I never liked to wear anything that I made, though. I, <laughs> I always gave it away. You know, and people were proud to wear it. But I was like, why? I just like, <laughs> it took me five days to make that. But uh, I went to school. And I studied special education first and then transferred over to theater arts. And I became known on campus really quickly at uh, Hampton University as the costume designer on campus. Well, now look at you. You are this famous costume designer and Academy Award winner, Oscar nominated. Next Friday, September 8th, you will be here in Springfield at 1 p.m. at Art for the Soul Gallery to yes. do a book signing. You can get copies of this book um, it's at 1 p.m. It's in Tower Square. Um, how can folks get a, you know, get well, to Well, it's called you? a sip and sign. So you can sip as well as uh, <laughs> I will sign. Uh, and it's open to the public. Oh, wonderful. I, I can't wait to go. There's so many people um, heading over there, I know. And there'll be at least 100 copies of the book available. And uh, Bill, you had something to say? I would like to know a little bit more about the trajectory of your career. I mean, you are, in fact, a living legend. <laughs> but we've sort of left out the part between you found a sewing machine and what you thought was a desk uh, to college to, to being someone who was just honored and revered in your profession. Could you fill in a little bit of that for yeah, us, please? No, Steven Spielberg didn't knock on my mother's front door and say, <laughs> that little girl right there, come with me. Um, no, I went to Hampton. I graduated with a degree in theater arts, mainly having had done most of the training myself. But uh, I came back here to Springfield and I worked for Stage West, it was called. It's now called City Stage downtown. Mm. I did an internship there and uh, a wonderful person named Georgia Carney Darling, who was the uh, head cutter. She gave me a recommendation to go to the Santa Fe Opera, where I, I continued to intern. Uh, at the opera. So I packed up my Volkswagen Rabbit and drove over to Santa Fe, New Mexico. And I did a summer internship at the opera. And we built mm. five operas from the ground up in one summer. Wow. So uh, from there, I went out to Los Angeles. And that's when I met Spike Lee. And, you know, he called me early one morning and said, you know, this is the man of your dreams. And <laughs> I, I said, Denzel. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, no, this is Spike. <laughs> <laughs> well, with your white sewing machine, you you were told to do the white thing, right? Yeah, do the white thing. But what I want to do, is, I just want to piggyback on Bill's question, which is, 
So you found the sewing machine. Why did you go into costumery instead of fashion? Oh, true. That's a good question. Well, because I was I, I was more interested in storytelling. I actually, um, uh, when I changed my major from special education, I went into the theater to be an actress. Mm -hmm. mm. Uh -huh. And so I liked the transformation process of reading a script and getting into the character's background and really understanding who they are, and creating, uh, a, embodying a character. And then I didn't make an audition one, uh, one uh, instance, and the professor who was the director, he asked me if I wanted to do the costumes, and I was like, oh, okay, you know, <laughs> consolation prize. <laughs> but I discovered that I could examine all the characters as a costume designer. Mm -hmm. Uh, not just one. I could create the arc for all of them and and also the relationships between them visually. So that's was the thing that hooked me. Well, you know, uh, there there's we had we talked a little bit outside and we'll just say briefly that um, you know, it's not just about being behind a curtain with a sewing machine, what you do. It is much more profound. So we want to make sure that people see a, a glimpse of this artistry at the book signing next Friday, September 8th at 1 p.m. at Art for the Soul Gallery. Um, come see it. Get a copy. Ruth E. Carter, what an honor to have you in the studio today. Oh, it's so nice of you. You guys have been great. Donna Belcasas, we thank you for bringing Ruth E. Carter. What a pleasure. What an honor to have her with us today. Thank you both so very, very much. This has been Artbeat on Talk the Talk. And this has been Talk the Talk. Thank you so much for joining us today. Pets and people, they belong together. They help us feel calm and loved with every tail wag, kiss, and snuggle. Bacon Humane Society believes in this bond, and your support keeps people and pets together. You provide resources so animals with medical issues can get the care they need. Our pet food aid program lets people facing tough times feed and keep their pets because you care. Bacon's many programs and services help companion animals and the people who love them. To make a gift, visit DakinHumane.org. You're a nonprofit doing good work in the community. You want to let people know? That's easy. Talk to Hannah. Tell her you want to have a PSA on WHMP. If you're a community nonprofit, WHMP helps you communicate. Have an event? Need donations? Volunteers? Talk to Hannah. She'll help you craft a message and we'll run it at no cost. Hi, it's Hannah. Email me at hward at whmp.com or call me at 586-7400. WHMP News, Information, and the Arts and messages from community nonprofits. WHMP Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. And welcome to the show. I am Buzz Eisenberg. And I'm Bill Newman. And, Bill, there was so much to celebrate across the Commonwealth yesterday. The headline in the Greenfield Recorder this morning is Free Community College Program, and then in quotes, monumental students, educators speak to the launch of Mass Reconnect this fall uh, at Greenfield Community College and throughout the Commonwealth at every community college. There has been uh, a celebratory air about the opening of this year's semester, this semester's uh, work it um is so powerful that people over the age of 25 are going to be able to return to school or go to school for the first time and uh increase their marketability in the job arena in the employment arena it's just uh 
It's powerful. What What are your thoughts? We were just talking about the Cherish Act, you and I. Uh, what are your thoughts with respect to this wonderful program? Well, Mass Reconnect, for those of our listeners who have not been with us all this week, is a program we have been following, reporting on, and interviewing about on this show. It is a program that allows persons 25 and older to return to community college, both for a degree of a, and an associate's degree and as preparatory for a bachelor's degree and further uh, higher education as well. Of course, it allows persons to go to community college and receive uh, training for specific jobs uh, in nursing and any number of fields as well. And it not only pays for the tuition and fees, but it has stipends so that people can actually afford to go to college and return to college. It is a spectacularly important, wonderful program, and it deserves not only accolades and the applause from all of us, but it particularly deserves to for us to recognize the students who are participating, uh, these, these people who are returning to college and saying, yes, finally, I have my opportunity and I'm going to take advantage of it. Uh, that's really well said, Bill. I mean, th what we all just have to remember is community colleges uh, help people realize their dreams, life dreams. Uh, it, it, we can't overstate the importance of the ability to go there and not walk away, you know, up to your eyeballs in debt um, and sacrificing other portions of your life, the car that needs repair, the table that needs to have food on it, the children that need to be clothed. Instead, people are able to get an education uh, and become more productive for all of our benefit, pay more taxes because their employability, because their feeling about themselves is greater. It, we can't overstate it. And, and, and that's a great segue to our guest uh, here in studio because um, Claire Higgins, you, uh, as the Executive Director of Community Action of Pioneer Valley, you um, also head, head start. And while we're talking about community college for those over 25, we hear time and time again that the real formative basis for education really happens at a much younger age, right? Both of you. So let's talk about that. Let's start there. Why is the Head Start program, why is daycare, why is early childhood education so important? Um, I just, I'll just note that I'm also a trustee of GCC and a, a person who took classes at GCC, HCC, and finally graduated from the university without walls. So I understand that access to higher education is critically you, important. You, Claire Higgins, are the gift that just keeps giving. That's <laughs> you didn't what know I all think. that. See that? <coughs> Actually, I did know it about GCC, but... Uh... Yeah. Um, as a working person working with young children, it was very difficult to go to school and also uh, work full-time. So... Um, and I didn't have kids to raise, so many of the employees that we have, are have it's even more complicated to, with them because they have families that they're raising at the same time. So what we know about brain science is what, what informs what I think about early education. The brains are developed in the first, the most brain development happens in the first five years of life. That's when the synapses are connecting and, and rewiring and allowing uh, our brains to be as facile and as adaptive and as quick as we possibly can as we move forward into learning. And it's an integrated process with verbal and sensory and motor learning. It's not just uh, reading, writing, and arithmetic or getting to know your colors. 
right? It's, it's also about um, social regulation, children learning how to um, stop themselves before they do something maybe they, were they know they weren't supposed to do, right? So that, that, that's a very simplified version of self-regulation, but... No, but also just, just a notion of sharing, that, you know, you well, uh, when you're I, an I, infant, it's all about me, right? What me, can I get? But then you have to learn to work with other people. I'm going to say, I'm on a contrary view on sharing. Oh, you do? Adults are not sharers either. If somebody drives up to you while you're about to park and says, can we share that parking space, I'm pretty sure you're going to say no. Get out of my face, I'm going to punch you. <laughs> That's right. Sh sh uh, what kids really need to learn to do is take turns and then invite children into to play with them. That's the difference between sharing as we think. Well, share a toy, what does that mean? I'm supposed to give it to you now? Yeah. Right? So it's, it's a complex web of interrelated um, social relationships and the emotional uh, challenges that come with that. That's what happens in early education. So how are we doing here in Massachusetts in terms of supporting that early education? Great question. I just want to make one more note, um, Professor, um, <laughs> that <laughs> unlike uh, uh, that, uh, that the most brain development happens in the first five years, but the smallest paychecks also come with the first five years. Uh, mm. Okay, so there's an inverse ratio there. I think that's the right math term. Um, so in Massachusetts, we're actually... Um, better than many, many, many uh, states. We're trying to do things, in, uh, and we always have been focused on early education, but in ways that you know, need to change with the time. So we have some of the best licensing regulations in the country, for instance, so the spaces are safe. We have um, a commitment to, uh, as, as a state that has so many higher ed education institutes, people understand the value of early education and care. Putting our money there is becomes difficult because it's costly, right? Uh, the ratios that we have to have for infants are two to seven, toddlers two to nine, preschool. You know, ideal ratios are more like two to fifteen. Uh, so, paying for that staff and the staff being highly educated can cost money, right? So, over the last. Um, Budget, two budget seasons, the state, uh, the legislature put out a, a kind of a blueprint for high quality early education and care uh, through a special commission. That includes raising the rates that are paid to the providers, um, includes supporting providers that don't take state money some, with some other kinds of money that can make sure that they're available to parents. Complicated, but it, it, it really laid out a blueprint. And last year they funded it, some of the beginning pieces of it in the budget. Um, this year, they funded significant portions of it, um, and the governor vetoed some of those pieces. I'm um, a brand new governor. Could you, yeah. Could you stop there for a second? Yeah. I think it's shocking for people to hear that Governor Maura Healy vetoed money appropriated by the legislature that the legislature thought was needed and was and was part of the budget, and Maura Healy vetoed money for the, for the kids. I don't get it. I'm going to give her a pass in her first budget and not beat up on her. I think she's still learning a, a, a vastly complicated system. She had a couple priorities, including free lunches for all kids in our schools, which is incredibly important and expensive. And, and I'm a firm believer in the Mass Reconnect program for people over 25 to go back to community college. I'm hoping that the, the and I I'm, ho hope to heavens that 
the legislature overrides those vetoes because we need that money in the system. I think it's a difference in interpretation about what th that money was being being directed to. You know, again, she's new. I'm not going to beat her up on it. I'm, I'm, I'm asking our legislators and have been asking our legislators to override those vetoes. It's not the first time people have vetoed money that I've been interested in, so I don't... I, I've stopped taking it. Like I, I, I don't see it as a value judgment. She on her. said that I'm directing, I'm directing this veto at Claire Higgins as she signed. <laughs> no, yeah, I mean, I don't see it. 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 She made some decisions that I don't agree with, and and that that means we in the early education community have some work to do to educate her on this because she needs to be educated on it. I don't well, know that, what else to say about. Maybe that. you can educate us on right. it, right? Uh, as Executive Director Claire Higgins of uh, uh, the Community Action of Pioneer Valley. You also head Head Start. What well, is Head Start? Head Start? Our Head Start and, and early ed money from the state are, are combined to create a full-day, full-year experience for children. Head Start, typically over the many years it's been around, has been a half-day or partial-day program and a school calendar year. So children in our programs... There are some half-day children. Or how many programs are there under your... Uh, under s how many sites? Uh, we just reduced in order to give people pay raises, which we were allowed to do with the Head Start. You know, we've uh, proposed a Head Start to do that. So we have about, I think it's either nine or ten sites now, down from 12. I think it's nine. Um, so, and we're going to serve for fewer children because the ratios, the, the equation is very clear, right? If you, s if you have a fixed pot of money and you serve more children... You have to pay the teachers less because the ratios are fixed in regulation, right? <laughs> so, um, you know, it's a, a dilemma that the public schools run into. They want to pay their teachers more, but they have a certain number of kids. They sometimes raise class sizes, which is also not good, right? So, um, so, Bill, uh, you know, I, I, I am not happy with the governor. Uh, it's a rookie pass, uh, a, a rookie mess th that she made here, and uh, I, I think of. You know, I kind of wish she had bought drapes like Deval Patrick did, but um, instead <laughs> she made these vetoes. And so, I, you know, I forgave Deval Patrick. I'm going to forgive Maura Healy. I just want the legislature to override the veto. <laughs> I made rookie Is mistakes it? when I sat in City Hall. And, and believe me, people told me. Former Northampton Mayor Claire Higgins sat in City Hall. Bill. Sat in City Hall. I'm wondering if the, the governor looks at this and says, well, it's X number of dollars that is not going to go to early childhood education. But she's the governor of the state. It's going to go for some other program to other some other priority. And I'm wondering if there's been any explanation for you that said, well, persons involved and devoted to early childhood education are going to be disappointed, but here's another group of people, another priority of mine who will be receiving more money. Any explanation along those lines? I have the same dilemma. I'm thrilled that she put in new money into the school food program, school lunch program. I'm thrilled that she did the mass reconnect. She doesn't take the education, our, our early ed money, and redirect it to, you know, she made priority choices, right? And um, the legislature then sent her back a budget with more money in early education and care, and she took it back out again. So, and we'll get there. It's not quite that clean math, so I don't want to go deep in the weeds here, but, you know, every governor vetoes something. She chose these things to veto. On the choice, Claire Higgins, rather than serving more kids to pay closer to a decent wage to those providers that are providing right. educational services, 
what are the requirements? Is there certifications need? For, uh, so that's that? a great, that is a good question. License, there are minimum standards in the licensing around um, uh, a certain number of courses, experience, and some level of degrees depending on what role you play. Um, but you can be a lead teacher without a degree, I think, still, if you have a certain amount of experience. I'm not deep in the weeds on the licensing, on the standard side. But we... Um, and those credentials cost money to obtain. Well, the state has been very generous, I'm going to say, in terms of providing uh, pathways to those courses. And Mass Reconnect is going to really help many of our teachers. That's why I don't see it as an, uh, uh, you know, none of this is simple, right? Um, but uh, the reality was that when we made this decision to reduce the number of children we were serving, we weren't serving them because we couldn't hire people to be in the classrooms because we didn't pay enough, right? So we had empty classrooms across the region. Do you have an idea of how many kids are either unserved or underserved? That data is available. I don't have it, but there are, that is, I don't have it at my fingertips, but that data is available. And there's, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of kids that need care. And the state system only subsidized children that come in at a, a pretty low income. There are also families who are not low income, but not well to do, that are struggling as Working well. Family. And Massachusetts has some of the highest child care costs in the country. Why is that? Because we're a high cost state uh, in general. Uh, so, uh, uh, and because we have higher uh, our regulations, so two to seven for infants in another state might be two to 10, two to 12. That changes the cost. We are talking with uh, Claire Higgins, the Executive Director of Community Action Pioneer Valley, who is giving a pass to Governor Morgan Healy on her $56 billion budget. She vetoed the extra money for I would say I would say I think she's on a learning curve. Aren't and we I, all? And I'm, I, I hope she, you know, there's something she'll learn from this particular issue. We're going to be right back, continue our conversation with the very forgiving Claire Higgins. I'm an early educator. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. It's your home for the resistance. Tom Hartman, weekdays at noon. Get informed and get involved. I'm Tom Hartman from the Tom Hartman Program. Intelligent talk, opinion, and debate. Join me every weekday, noon to 3, right here on WHMP. 1015 and 1400 WHMP. Oh, how great it would feel to have your 20-year-old knees, shoulders, hips, and back. You know, you don't think about your pains when you're in your 20s or 30s, but you wish you could get that body back when you're in your 60s. I think QC did that for me. For Patrick, it started with a simple phone call to QC Kinetics. One day I was driving and I just heard the radio and I pulled over and took the number and I called him when I got home. Maybe that's you and you're listening right now. Why wait? QC Kinetics Regenerative Treatments uses your body's own natural biologics to heal and restore damaged tissue without invasive surgery or harmful drugs. And as for the results... My knees are as good as they were when I was in my 20s. I'm really happy with what happened. For Patrick, it's like QC Kinetics Turn Back the Clock. Now it's your turn. Call QC Kinetics today for your complimentary consultation. Call QC Kinetics, 413-992-5450. That's 413-992-5450. 413-992-5450. Are you tired of feeling like a watchless hero in a world full of timekeeping villains? Fear not. 
Hero Watch Repair is here to save the day. With over 20 years of experience and a heroic five-star customer rating, Hero Watch is the ultimate superhero of watch repair and customization in the Valley. These heroes possess the power to buy, fix, sell, and customize watches like no other. They'll swoop in, rescue your timepiece, and restore it to its former glory. Call Avery at Hero Watch Repair, East Hampton. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we are back. This is our community action segment with Claire Higgins and community action. Obviously, the focus is on community action. And what is the backbone of our community? It's our families and the children that are taken care of, especially in the early times of their life when those synapses of their brain are just developing. So, uh, Bill, you had a question for Claire Higgins. I, I do. Uh, Claire Higgins, you're the executive director of Community Action. You were for many years the mayor of Northampton. So you know better than most that when you make a decision as a politician, as a, a high elected official, you make people unhappy. You make some people happy, but you're going to make other people unhappy. And the governor, of course, sits in that corner office and has exactly that problem that you had when you sat in the chief executive's chair here in Northampton. What I would like to understand better is if the legislature overrules the governor's veto, which you've been forgiving about, um, but if the legislature does what you want it to do, which is override the governor's veto and restore the money to early childhood education, what would that mean for community action? What would that mean so, for us here in the Valley? So there are two vetoes that um, were, uh, three, th yeah, two vetoes that were really focused on. The simple one to talk about is Head Start. Head st there's a money that the state gives to supplement what we do with our Head Start funding. Head Start requires us to have an in-kind match on every dollar they give us. This state money helps us reach that in-kind match, and it's worth about one position to us. So that position, uh, would we? F it's either it, that's a way to think about it. It's worth a little less than one position. Does that help us with some of our our uh, support staff for mental health? Is that you know? We'll, we'll re it may help us put something in that we don't have now, right? That's so we haven't we haven't we're not spending money we don't have there. On the early education side which is, there was a rate reserve for early education, hoping for rates that would come, increase the rates we get paid every, every day for taking care of children. The, gov the governor vetoed it, saying there was enough in there. I think she just misunderstood it, honestly, and there isn't enough in that rate reserve to do a, a legitimate raise to the Western Mass. Again, if we get the money back, it will go back into investing in our staff, our salaries. Um, we don't, Head Start uh, does a, uh, we have enough money this year to do these raises, but in the out years, we need to keep giving people raises in order to keep them. So the Head Start, the EEC rate increase will help bolster our budget so that we can do that in out years. And one more thing, there was a line item in there to help to allow teachers in child care centers to um, bring their child to the child care center and have subsidized care, and uh, she vetoed that. She says it's the money's in there, but we can't find it, so she vetoed that. Oh, that's something I don't often think of. Shame on me. Those who provide child care need chi child care. A lot of people, uh, 
over the years, and I've been in and out of the early ed world for a long time, a lot of people that were my colleagues were, were people whose children came to the center. They may have gotten hired or they learned about the center because their child came, and then they stayed for many years. We have one that's a couple that are in there, you know, I can think of one in particular right now that's going to be celebrating their 35th anniversary with us. So it's a doorway in for people, and then they see it as a career path. I'm sorry I'm being a little bit of vague here because um, uh, this money is not budgeted by position necessarily for us. Uh, we, you know, we have somebody who comes in who's a bachelor's level teacher. We're going to pay them more than we're going to pay somebody who has an associate's degree. And so this gives us the flexibility to keep looking to hire the best people we can and um, there are also unexpected things that come up during the years. I expect that we're going to have to increase our subpay this year at some point. That's the kind of thing that allows us to do. So I have a what subpay? Substitute teacher pay. I have a two-part question, Claire Higgins. One is, how many community action programs are there in Massachusetts? And number two, are the rates of pay basically uh, commensurate with each other? Um, so there's 23 community action agencies across the Commonwealth. We, we do uh, each do our own uh, set of programs based on the needs assessments we do for our communities. But a commonality is most of us, if not all, do most of us do the fuel assistance program, LIHEAP. Most do energy and weatherization work. Many are Head Start grantees, and many do child care. Not, not all. Um, so, uh, and the rates of pay vary based on historical funding levels. That's the other thing here. <laughs> We're talking about programs that have been in place for decades, decades yeah. and decades. So on the early ed side, which is the federal money that comes into the state, our rates for us are uh, two-thirds, for, for instance, for infants, what Metro Boston is paying. So we're looking for regional equity out of this change in the rates. Now, I just want to say one more thing about where is the money going. The governor vetoed $200 million worth of, of funding for various things. We're not the only one. Um, one of those vetoes was to community action agencies um, for uh, a state supplemental amount for community action agencies as well so that we can keep manage the wage issue because the federal money doesn't grow very much, right? If So that for us, that's $277,000. That's about five positions for us, which would make a big difference in terms of filling positions that we have vacant now uh, to, to work with people when they call up and say, I need help with just about everything, right? All of the community action agencies across the state access that would be able to access some of that money, and uh, everybody's also arguing for that. She vetoed that $200 million because the money was coming out of the rainy day fund, and she didn't want to take it out of the rainy day fund. She wanted to do it out of ongoing revenue. So you're right, upstream, she made some decisions about the ongoing revenue, and um, she didn't budget as much as we wanted in early ed. We lobbied to get it put in, in the and, and, uh, and uh, early ed and community action agency funding. We lobbied to get it put in, and then she vetoed some of it. This is the dance that we do, <laughs> right? And, uh, we have a really good delegation who understands the importance of early education and care, and the legislature understands the value of early education and, and care. And my final question is going to be, it's going to be, going to be. Okay. Uh, what people can do to influence their, delega their delegation. But before I ask you that, if we were to have a couple of parents in here whose children are in the Head Start program, um, and we were to ask them what impact does it have on your life, on your children's life, 
to be in the Head Start program, what would they say? You know, I don't want to put words in anybody's mouth, but I can tell you that we have children in our program whose parents came to the program, be and, and they came back because they know the value of the program for their children. Um, I went to visit our Amherst site recently. I used to be the director there many years ago, and the director pointed out a kid and said, remember her, Mom? And she named the name, and I said, yep, I do. That's just one of many of those kinds of examples. Our early education programs, Head Start and early education programs, allow parents to go to work or school knowing that their children are, are, are well cared for. They allow the children to be in an in a, in a environment that um, is educationally, socially, and emotionally uh, geared for their, to have the most optimal development that they can have with people who really don't just bring their brain to work to figure that stuff out. They bring their heart to work. Those teachers are falling in love with those kids. Right, and those many of them have relationships over many years with these kids after they leave. So, and we've seen children who've been in our programs come back and take jobs with us. So we had a great little. We do a Zoom call, um, and uh, one of our Head Start now administrators was on the call and mentioned one of the people who works in a different program and said, "I was her teacher," or I think it might have gone the other way around. So, the. It's really about the relationships that people build over time, the relationships parents build with teachers, with children, the relationships that children make with each other. I'll just tell you one more anecdote. I, I was on Facebook, and I saw two kids who are now grown people um, both posted something, and I thought, oh, yeah, they were best friends when they were four, mm. and they're still friends, right? So, you know, we talk a lot about, like... We talk about, it, 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 you know, the news is filled with the hard stuff in life. But the, st the stuff that makes life worthwhile is the relationships we make with each other, right? And that's what happens in our child care centers every day, uh, in, in, our, in our Head Start sites every day, and also in our other programs, right? So that's what our goal is, to create a, a, the community and community action is real. Our tagline is access, opportunity, and community. Give people access. Have, give them the opportunity to find jobs or, or a great place for the kid and help them and with them build a stronger community through the relationships we create. So before we break, what can people do to influence their, their representative or senator? You know, they can let our, your rep know that you care about child care and you care about community action and let them know that if they can see clear to veto those overrides, we'd love to see that happen. But I will tell you that our delegation's been great on this. I just want to thank them publicly. They have been great on this issue. They understand the value of early education, and they understand the value of community action. Well, that's a great place to leave it. Claire Higgins, thank you so much. This is our monthly segment. We call it Community Action because Claire Higgins is the executive director of Community Action, and thank it's you so much. brilliant branding. Well Brilliant done. branding, but um, <laughs> I, I think Newman did that, not the me. Newman. <laughs> <laughs> but I also want to say it's our children, it's our families, it's our community. Thank you. Thanks for having me. We'll be right back. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Plans for a redesign of Northampton's Main Street are running into some snags. Over 1,000 residents have signed a petition to try to block the project. But Mayor Gina Louise Sheriff says she stands firmly behind the picture Main Street project. 
Shara released a statement saying she has no intention to stop the advancement and says there was extensive public input that went into the design. The Picture Main Street project will create three 11-foot-wide travel lanes, expand sidewalks, and remove some on-street parking. The design encompasses nearly half a mile of Main Street, beginning at West and Elm near Smith College, and traveling to the intersection of Market and Holly. The $21 million project will take about three years to complete. Opponents say it will cause traffic congestion and harm to local businesses. The Norwatic Rail Trail Tunnel under Route 9 in Hadley will be closed for repairs beginning next week. The Massachusetts DOT construction crews will be conducting pavement crack repairs as part of extending the tunnel to accommodate the widening of Route 9. The tunnel closure is scheduled to begin on Tuesday, September 5th, and the anticipated reopening is scheduled for Friday, October 6th. The Amherst Pelham Regional School District has appointed an interim superintendent. Douglas Slaughter will replace outgoing superintendent Michael Morris immediately. And over 35,000 visitors are expected at this year's three-county fair. Festivities kick off today and run through Labor Day on Monday. Sunny today with a light breeze, a high of 74 to 78. Scattered clouds tonight, evening temperatures in the 60s, an overnight low of 48 to 54. It's a sun cloud mix on Saturday, a high of 78 to 82. Mid 80s and mostly sunny on Sunday, 91 on Labor Day Monday and sunny skies. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. In a world of chaos, Armstrong and Getty Show cuts through the fake news of the day and gets straight to the common sense heart of the burning issues listeners really care about. Jack Armstrong and Joe Getty. Armstrong and Getty. Be informed and involved. Listen to Armstrong and Getty weekdays from 6 to 9 p.m. right here on 101.5 and 1400 WHMP. News, information, and the arts. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member, Bill Newman. Local farmers are arriving at the co-op every day with summer berries, corn, tomatoes, and watermelon, and endless bounty. At the co-op seafood counter, little neck clams are rolling in. What goes better with corn and tomatoes than sweet, briny little necks? No time to cook today? The co-op makes pizza, sandwiches, burgers, sushi, and smoothies, and they make it all from scratch. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. Get on your bike in September with the 13th annual Will Bike for Food, benefiting the Food Bank of Western Mass. This fun cycling event takes place September 24th at the Lions Club Pavilion in Hatfield. Cyclists of all ages and levels can pedal towards a hunger-free future while cycling through the scenic Connecticut River Valley and then celebrating at the exclusive after party. So join a team of friends, family, or co-workers, or ride and fundraise yourself. Register today at willbikeforfood.org. Presented by Stop and Shop. You're a nonprofit doing good work in the community. You want to let people know? That's easy. Talk to Hannah. Tell her you want to have a PSA on WHMP. If you're a community nonprofit, WHMP helps you communicate. Have an event? Need donations? Volunteers? Talk to Hannah. She'll help you craft a message and we'll run it at no cost. Hi, it's Hannah. Email me at hward at whmp.com or call me at 586-7400. WHMP News, Information, and the Arts and messages from community nonprofits. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. WHMP. And welcome back to the show. We're going to continue talking about community after our segment with Community Action and the Importance of Head Start. Uh, because uh, we live in a wonderful sense of 
people around here care more about community uh, than anywhere else that I've been in in my life. It's it's a treasure to be around here. And whether you're a business or a not-for-profit, the understanding that we're all in it together, the understanding about building community and the importance of doing that is never far from the surface of our interactions around here. With us to talk about that, we're going to turn to Gary Bogoff, who is a CEO and a treasurer and a brewer for Berkshire uh, Brewing Company. Um, and we're going to talk about an event that he just uh, sponsored and hosted in order to help our farmers in this community. But there's a very special organization that's going to have a very special event. The director of the organization is Chelsea Klein, who's here with us. Hello, Chelsea. Hello. Thank you for having me. Oh, there is something. Well, it's called a bed-in, and it's going to happen next Friday, the 8th, from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m., on Russell Street uh, at Greenfield Savings Bank. Tell us about this. Well, I'm sure everybody remembers Monty's awesome campouts that he did I for I remember Cancer freezing <laughs> yes. in February. Well, we won't be freezing this year, and we'll be a lot more cozy because we'll be in bed. So it shifted from a campout to a bed-in, and Tara Brewster from Greenfield Savings Bank has lovingly taken the torch from Monty, and he's lovingly passed it, and she'll be carrying on the tradition for us. So we will be at the Hadley branch of Greenfield Savings Bank on Route 9, from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m., which is all day, on Friday, September 8th. And we will be having fun and food and community. And we'll have authors and fun surprises. And Tara will be there in bed. And we would love for people to stop by. Well, people will be there in bed. I, I'm going to venture a guess. I'm going to, unlike Monty Belmonte, I think Tara is not likely to be dressed as Elvis Presley for this event. Is that right? Well, you never know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, she is Tara Brewster after all. She's going to have all kinds of fun surprises for us. Give us a couple minutes about Cancer Connection. Absolutely. So our mission is to provide a warm haven for those who are going through cancer and also their loved ones and their caregivers. And what that means is that we provide free services for people who are who are going through a cancer diagnosis. So we have integrative therapies like massage and Reiki and reflexology, acupuncture, energy balancing, even calming strategies. We have support groups that build connection and community and hold people when they're going through a hard time. And we also have fun things like knitting and qigong yoga and things like that. And we also have our signature program, which is a one-on-one -on -one emotional support called Befriending, where um, someone who is, who is either a caregiver or has a cancer diagnosis can call to our center or come in in person and meet with someone who is trained in empathetic and deep listening. They're known as Befrienders, and that's one of our most important programs. So we offer all of these services for free at our center, which is at 41 Locust Street, right across from Cooley Dickinson Hospital. And people can learn more at our website, cancer-connection.org. Bill, what I've always been struck by about the Cancer Connection is not just those who are afflicted with this dreadful disease, but the people that love them, the people that care for them. That's right, and that's one of the really unique things about us is that we support the loved ones and the caregivers as well. Bill? I think that one aspect of the Cancer Connection that I really want you to emphasize, Chelsea, is that this is an organization supported entirely by the community. It, there are no insurance companies that are paying. Uh, there are no government programs that say, here, have, them, have this money. Everything that happens in and for the Cancer Connection is because of the community. And therefore, this bed-in, which sounds like fun, and it's going to be fun. And Tara Brewster is going to be just a, just a screech at this. I know she is. And she's very, very funny, and she's very creative. It's also very important because money 
is for the community, by the community, of the community. And if you could spend half a minute telling us about that, I'd be appreciative. Absolutely right, Bill. You you hit the nail on the head. And the reason that this organization was founded over 20 years ago by Jackie Walker and Deb Orgera is because they identified the gaps in our healthcare system and noticed that people were not being held um, emotionally, that they were um, suffering from many of the side effects of uh, cancer treatments. And those services were not available to everyone because they are expensive and they are time consuming. So that's why this organization exists. And that's why we need the community to support us. So, Chelsea Klein, uh, if people want to find out more about the event, I'm going to just say it's going to be next Friday, uh, September 8th. It's going to be at Greenfield Savings Bank right there on Route 9 on Russell Street. It's going to be from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. It's called a bed-in. What else should people know about it? And how can they find out more information about it? Well, if they go to our website, cancer-connection.org, they can find out more information. And they can also watch on Facebook Live for the entire day. We will be streaming from the bank, and you can watch Tara. Um, and you can find the link on our website at the special events page. But you can also just stop by and see her. Um, you can hop into bed and chat about things. Um, you can also make a donation when you come in in person. Or you can call us at 413-586-1642. Wait a sec. Wait, 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 wait. Just before we go, you're saying we can hop into bed with Tara Brewster? How she did will... we know that Newman was going to jump in with that? But it is quite an invitation, isn't it? Andy's Oak Shop has lent us a whole bedroom set for the day, which is going to be beautiful. We're so excited about it. And we'll have Paul Sestick from Paul and Elizabeth making food. We will have Texas Roadhouse. They'll be making food. We have an amazing list of sponsors, including Tandem Bagels and Cooley Dickinson Hospital. We'll have coffee from Dean's Beans Organic Coffee. So we have incredible sponsors that are helping us to make the day extra fun it sounds like a wonderful time to spend the day in bed what do you think bill i'm gonna pass i like my job (laughs) (laughs) chelsea klein thank you so much good luck it's for the cancer connection it's for us so please support it it's next friday and one more time cancer-connection.org thank you so much for having me thank you for coming chelsea klein I want to turn to you, Gary. Gary Bogoff, you are the CEO, you are uh, the treasurer, you're a brewer yourself of Berkshire Brewing Company, and you've just been listening to this. What do you think about this particular event that Chelsea Klein just described for us? Well, it's so great to hear another local community-sponsored organization going to the wire to help people who need help. It was very moving for me last Monday to be there with community leaders, with statewide leaders. Uh, the lieutenant governor was there. We had senators and representatives and bank presidents and, and celebrities uh, all convening at your, uh, your, your brewery in South Deerfield, Berkshire uh, Brewing Company, in order to support farmers who have been suffering this year because of the floods. What made you do that? Well, we've always been a supporter of our local community. Uh, We've been working with the food bank for 26 years. Uh, We sponsor or help Monty on his March for Hunger. Uh, We're a drop-off point where everybody can get warm and get something to eat and a little something to drink to make the last leg of their journey, which they do every year. And uh, it gets bigger and bigger every year. So... Uh, we, we've been, from the very beginning, uh, we, we love Deerfield and the community there. Uh, Franklin County is a very special place. 
the agriculture there is, is phenomenal. It really is a very integrated community. And a lot of my friends are actual farmers. We uh, give our spent grain to a lot of the dairy farmers for uh, their their feed programs, and uh, it, it, it's just great that everybody helps one What's another. What's a spent grain? Uh, when we're done with our brewing our, our malted barley, uh, we bring it over to the to the cows, and there's no alcohol in it, and they uh, enjoy it. It's a lot of protein. It's, it's really good for them. When you decided to become a local brewery, I mean, when I was raised, there weren't many local breweries. They're just national breweries are advertising on TV. When you decided to do that, you had to understand that being local carries with it some other implications. And uh, I'm just so impressed on those businesses that, that are as ambitious as a local brewery in terms of creating a product that can contest against nationally powerful multinational corporations. Uh, and yet you become part of the community in which you sort of, uh, the community that hosts you. That, were you aware of that when you started this brewery? Well, it, it's really a very simple concept. I call it capitalism with consciousness. And uh, we all have to make a living, but, you know, there's no sense beating up people to do it. Uh, the more you give back, the, the more you get. It, it's very simple. Do unto others as you want to have them do unto you. And um, we, we were fortunate. We met a, a lady named Ann Hamilton, who at the time was the uh, Chamber of Commerce director. And she reached out to us. And, you know, it, from the very beginning, it, it was just we, we've made a lot of friends in the community. And uh, it, as Chelsea said, you know, what you can give back is more important than what you take. It's so funny that you mentioned that because I just remembered something. I went on an eight-day tour of Russia in, I think it was 2007, with the chief justice of the uh, juvenile court system in Massachusetts, an interpreter, and Ann Hamilton. And our, plane, our flight to Moscow was delayed, and so we sat down at a little bar, and uh, I, I said, I'll buy drinks. Who wants what? And she turned to the bartender and said, you have a Berkshire beer, <laughs> and they didn't, and she was angry. <laughs> so there you go. We are talking to Gary Bogoff. We're going to come back to Gary about Berkshire Breweries. Well, commitment to the community. We'll be back right after this. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. I'm Lisa Riley. Join me every Saturday at 9.30 a.m. here on WHMP as we share stories that shine a light on justice-involved individuals or just underdogs in the game of life, their struggles, their successes, and the many resources and opportunities available for those who are hustling to carve a new path and prove that failure isn't final. So unlock your future, rewrite your story. This is The Hustler Files. 
Technicians, this is your chance. Get up to a $5,000 sign-on bonus at Gary Rome Hyundai or refer a technician to get a $2,500 referral fee. Be part of the family and receive truly exceptional compensation and full benefits. Join the Time Magazine's National Dealer of the Year team with a proven track record of team members averaging over 10 years at Gary Rome Hyundai. Technicians get up to a $5,000 sign-on bonus or refer a technician to get a $2,500 referral fee. To learn more and apply, go to GaryRomeHyundai.com family. This week's Shock Tuesday is Tavern on the Hill. This Tuesday at 9 a.m., Tavern on the Hill releases gift certificates for their restaurant on Mount Tom. Tavern on the Hill, barbecue done slow over native oak, brisket, ribs, and pulled pork, plus Tavern signature salmon, pumpkin tortillaki, and big deck with a view of the Berkshire foothills. And this Tuesday, you save 30%. Tavern on the Hill on Mount Tom, available this Shop Tuesday at 9 a.m. on the Shop 30 store at whmp.com. Northampton Neighbors is free of charge and open to all with a range of social and volunteer opportunities as well as services and support for members 55 and older in the city of Northampton. Need help? Want to help? Join us as a member, a volunteer, or donor. Northampton Neighbors is about more than aging in place. We're about engaging in place, this place. Find us online at northamptonneighbors.org or call us at 413-341-0160. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And welcome back to the show. I'm having just a terrific time getting to know uh, the CEO of uh, Berkshire Brewing Company, Gary Bogoff. I am a Berkshire uh, fan. I don't mind saying I like your darker beers a lot, Gary. But I just learned um, you have how much has Berkshire Brewing Company donated to the food bank in the years that you've been in existence? Uh, we donate 10% of one of our beers every month, and uh, we've donated over $260,000 to the that food bank. That is truly amazing. That's We often think about businesses, small businesses, just, you know, profit is just so important and the margins are too slim, but your commitment to feeding our neighbors, a quarter of a million dollars that you've given to the food bank over the years, it's, uh, there's no way to salute you uh, well enough to say thank you. I also understand you get you collaborate with Dean's Beans, which is also famously generous in supporting our community, right? Yes, Dean Kahn's is one of the finest gentlemen I've ever, ever met. And uh, we got together early on, and he wanted us to do a coffee beer for him. And if you like dark beers, we do... Uh, Dean's Beans Coffee House Porter, and every month, once again, we contribute to him, and he's got a couple of things that he does around the world by investing into the coffee plantations and the farmers that he works with, so he's another guy who really puts a lot back into his community and and the people that he works with. Let's talk a little bit about what you brew. You are a brewer. How did you become a brewer, Gary? Well, I owe it to my dad. He uh, turned me on to my first beer, and uh, then I owe it to Jimmy Carter because he's the one who legalized home brewing in the country (laughs) back in 78. So I started brewing as a hobbyist, and uh, I met my partner, and we started brewing to a point where our friends said, you got to go for it. We really like what you do, and we uh, met Ann, and Ann was very instrumental in us landing up in Franklin County. Uh, she she was a, a very special woman. 
And uh, we started off with the two of us. In Hamilton, you were just talking about. In Hamilton, yes. And uh, now we're uh, about 50 people. Uh, We're in the major part of New England. Uh, We we started brewing uh, and trying to recreate great beers from around the world. And back then, I was trying to educate the American public that there was something more than monosyllabic beers. Uh, and we just grew and grew, and it was little by little, and uh, it's just been a wonderful adventure. We'll be 30 years next year. Uh, I don't know much about the science of brewing, uh, but I remember uh, the one time I attempted it. I, I was really bad at capping it. So as we were sitting and eating dinner, that what I had just made and just capped, we heard all these explosions in the other room of, uh, I guess a little, I put a little too much love into those beers because it all came out the top. But, but it's yeast plus sugar equals alcohol and carbon dioxide. I remember that little formula. But there's so much science involved in, in making a, a proper brew. How much studying do you have to do when you go into a new... Uh, sort of venture? Well, I, I tell everybody if it was rocket science, I wouldn't be the guy doing it. <laughs> uh, but if you like cooking, if you like working in the kitchen, then you can be a, a good brewer. Uh, it, it's not complicated. It's really all about taste and flavor and and being able to recreate what you did the time before. So, uh, Is there anything new and innovative that you've got going? Well, my son is our new head brewer. Uh, t- the next generation has taken off. and From your father to you, from you to your son. Yes, and uh, he's doing a great job, and they're coming up with things I would have never thought of. So, uh, you know, it's really still a very exciting industry. Uh, there's a lot of good people. When we started, there were less than 500 in the country. Now there's over 9,500. So the old guys did a pretty good You're job about teaching the, the, the artists in the local. Uh, what, what do you call those companies? Artisan brewers. Yes, they're Artisan. craft brewers. Yeah, craft brewers. So, um, and Berkshire, you're in, you're still in Deerfield. Yes, we are. Um, and could people visit your brewery? Uh, yes, we have a beer garden that's open every Friday through Sunday, and uh, in the winter we have a nice little cozy tap room you can come into. And uh, we're dog-friendly and kid-friendly, and, you know, come on out and kick back and have a, a cool one. <laughs> it sounds great. I just want to uh, turn one more time. So you have 50 employees, and you, all, are the, most of those employees engaged in uh, production, or is it marketing? Where, what do they do? Uh, well, we're kind of different than a lot of small breweries in that we self-distribute. So we have our sales force, uh, our administrators, and then our brewers and drivers. So uh, we, we've got, you know, uh, a lot going on, and uh, we have a, a great crew of people that support everything we're doing. And I just like, want an update because I don't have one. The last that I heard, we were about $2 million from that fundraiser that Berkshire Brewing uh, hosted last Monday. Have you... I know the aspiration was $5 million. Do you know I, I think they're getting closer, and uh, I heard that they may even get a little bit more than that. So uh, I know the farmers were all very appreciative of, of what happened that night, and it was great to see all the uh, big wigs come out from Boston and, and 
pay some attention to Western Massachusetts. And just so listeners know, there are 72 farms that were damaged that we know of by uh, by those rains that we suffered uh, so much this year in 2023, and that uh, this this five million dollars is going to be distributed among those farms and. We just heard from farmer after farmer what a big difference it's going to make. They they don't want loans. They don't want to be further in debt. Gary Bogoff, I just want to thank you. I want to thank Berkshire Brewing Company. Thank you, boss. Su- for supporting our community and their product, Berkshire Brewing. They're in. I think Brewing. they're everywhere, right? Just about. I'm going to go home and have a beer. The rest of you, thank you so much for joining Talk the Talk. Like Gary, like Chelsea Klein, like Claire Higgins. Remember to walk the walk. I like beer It makes me a jolly good fellow Find local news and local talk for the Valley If we didn't go for this project the cost to repair the schools is estimated at 80 million and we don't get help with that so this vote is the absolutely the smartest financial choice and it's getting a building that we desperately need for our educators and for our students where the heart of the pioneer valley lives 1015 and 1400 whmp news information and the arts do you love fishing swimming or boating but hate the trash you find? Do you want to help protect clean water and wildlife? Whether you live near the Deerfield River, Millers, Westfield, Chicopee, or Connecticut, your local river needs you. Join the Connecticut River Conservancy and help us protect our rivers. Our rivers belong to all of us, and each of us has a responsibility. Together, we can make a difference. Learn more about what you can do at ctw.org.